0: All right, folks, well, let's get started tonight. Hope you all had a good week so far, trying to stay dry out there. At least it's not as cold as it has been, it's just a little wet. Tonight we're in Second Samuel chapter 11. We're just going to look at uh, uh, chapter 11 tonight. I was going to try to squeeze in 11 and 12, but I got to going through chapter 11 and thought, well, I'll spend a little more time here, so. But um, let's open in a word of prayer. Continue to pray for uh, Andrew's dad. He's recovering. And um, you can continue to pray for my brother-in-law. He was supposed to get a pacemaker this morning. He's still in ICU, so I don't know. I haven't heard back from them. See what's going on with that. But anyway, and others probably need to pray for us. So... Um, Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll uh, open up our study. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you we can gather here in this place tonight, and thank you for folks that are willing to set aside time to come and fellowship and, and uh, pray and also study your word. And, and Lord, as we look into Second Samuel chapter 11 uh, tonight, Lord, I just pray that we would uh, be open to the text and, and be taught by your spirit what's here for us and apply it to us. And Lord, um, we can't do this on our own lord it takes your spirit to enable our minds to uh, comprehend and to uh, really assimilate the spiritual truths that are before us and um, we depend on you ultimately for that and so lord we do think of uh, andrew's father as he recovers in san francisco just pray that you would continue to be with him as he recovers from this uh, serious event that he had and and lord just pray give the doctor's wisdom and and just uh, help him to to grow physically stronger. And Lord, we also pray for my brother-in-law Dave as he gets this pacemaker and tries to uh, get back on on his feet. Lord, just pray that you would be with my sister as well as she's by herself during this time. And and Lord, um, just pray that you'd watch over them. So we just pray you'd open our hearts to your word tonight. And thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to open up here. We'll read the text in a moment. But uh, tonight we're going to be talking about David's fall. David's fall. Uh, I was reading through one of John Calvin's sermons. It was um, he, he gave it on a, a Wednesday night, on an August twelfth, and he started the sermon on this text. By the way, Second Samuel chapter eleven, with this, uh, with these words, he says, "Now here is a story." that should make your hair stand straight up on end whenever you think of it. That a servant of God, as excellent as David, should fall into such a serious and enormous sin that he could be judged the most morally lax and promiscuous in the world. Um, When we read this text, there's a sense in which it's hard to believe that Chapters 11 and 12 are are in the Bible. Uh, Logically, we should say this shouldn't be in there. It shouldn't be in the Bible. As a matter of fact, their inclusion in, in the text really attests to the authenticity and the veracity of the recorded scriptures, that they're authentic. Because I guarantee you, if just a mere man would have woven these stories together, they wouldn't have included this tawdry tale about their king. They would have left it out. They would have covered it up. Uh, we know what that's like in the day of politics in which we live today. Uh, people don't air this kind of laundry out for everybody to see it. It would have been covered up, protect to to protect King David. Um, this is remember who we talked about. We're, we're talking about David, the king of Israel. Uh, he's one of the most central figures in all of scripture when you really stop and think about it. I mean, you know, around Christmas time, we start reading scriptures and almost every other verse is son of David, son of David. Uh, He really is one of the main staples, one of the main individuals that brings the introduction of Jesus Christ, the Messiah into the world. It comes in terms of David. Think about it with me. You think of the son of David, Christ is referred to the son of David. Uh, he sits on whose throne? The throne of David. Um, he comes from the line of David. Uh, he's really known as the second David. Even some of the Old Testament prophecies in Hosea and other books refer to Christ as David. So David is not just some little guy here in Scripture, he's really a the central theme. Of the entire scriptures. As a matter of fact, one of the largest books, longest books, compilation of books in the Bible is what? The book of Psalms. The Psalms of who? David. David. Now, he didn't write all of them, but he wrote a great majority of them, To We refer to them as the Psalms of David. I have a commentary series called The Treasury of David on, on the book of, of Psalms. Um, And yet we have this story here in chapter 11 and 12, and it's really uh, told to us in a way that's very artistic. It's told to us in a way that's almost brutally honest. I mean, you wouldn't want to tell this story if it was like in our family. We wouldn't tell this story, right? We wouldn't just, we'd kind of sweep it under the carpet. Uh, there's very straight language that's used here, very straightforward language. There's no punches that are pulled. Um, there's no excuses given. It's really more than we want to know about King David, to be honest. It's, it's kind of awkward to, to talk about it. Uh, it's, some of it is we wish we never even would have found out this stuff about King David. It's shocking. And yet it's not covered up. There's no... Um, dumbing down of the narrative. There's no photoshopping going on. Well, let's make it look this way when it's not there. The the story is kept in the Bible. And by the way, David's name is still kept after all this goes on in the genealogy of Christ. As you get to the New Testament, Matthew 1. He's listed right there. Even, Even the wife of Uriah, an individual here in this chapter, is mentioned in the genealogy. And by the way, she's mentioned as the wife of Uriah. Which tells you something about what God recognizes. Um, So this is David, the seed of David. Jesus Christ um, would live and he would reign forever on David's throne. The word that was given to David, by the way, is called the Torah Har Adam. And David is at the center, really, of the purposes of of God for all, all humanity, when you stop and look at the character of, of, of David. And yet we have the story here before us, and, you know, I entitled this section, David's Fall, because that's exactly what it is. It's a fall. Uh, it's the fall, just like the fall from the very beginning of time, when Adam and Eve fell. It's very similar. The fall of Adam, the first king, the, 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 the representative Um, his fall, our representative in history, his fall really altered all of history when you stop and think about it. Uh, One of the effects that happened when Adam fell, after Adam fell, one of the things that happened was all the falls after the original fall, all the succeeding falls throughout all of history, seemed to happen a lot easier. (laughs) Would you agree? I mean, think about what, what Satan had to do with Adam and Eve to get them to fall. And yet, now, falling, sinning, we can call it, comes almost second nature to us. We don't, we don't need to be tempted very long before we, we sin. Um, we don't have to have some long, drawn-out temptation like Adam and Eve did, or even like Christ did in the New Testament. All those temptations happen quickly for us. As a matter of fact, if you think of the temptations in a a race, I mean, we we trip over the first hurdle in the race of temptation, and we're flat on our face. Uh, Some commentators believe this story may have been recorded literally or communicated to the, the author here by David himself just because of the way it's written, the language it's written. Uh, and up to this point, as we've been going through First and 2 Samuel, especially 2 Samuel, up to this point, things have been happening very quickly. Would you agree? I mean, go back to chapter 8. Remember when we went through chapter 8? We talked about David's victories. It's just like war, boom, war, boom, war, boom. War. And not a lot of detail. It's just happening very, very, very quickly. And each chapter just kind of flies by. And it's almost now the author purposely slows the narrative down. He pulls the reins in and he says, we need to slow the conversation down. And the reason he does that is because he puts the brakes on because now he starts to slow it down. He talks about every detail, every action. And what he's telling us is this is very, very serious. This is sobering what's happening here in these two chapters. Now, remember the context of what's going on here. In in, in chapters 9 and 10, we saw David express what we called, has said, covenant love. Covenant love. Covenant kindness. And he expressed it to the grandson of his enemy Saul, remember? Mephibosheth. He expressed love to him. He didn't have to. He should have killed him. He was a grandson of the enemy. He could have had some kind of a line to the throne. Mostly kings would wipe those people out when they took over. There was no grace involved there. Well, David didn't do that. And then he also showed love to even a foreigner. Last week we saw this. The son of Nahash who he had an old treaty with, Hanan, this Gentile, he showed, or he tried, we should say, to show Hesed to him, to show covenant love to him. Remember, and they didn't believe it. And they pulled some games with David and ended up paying the price. But now we come to this chapter, we come to chapter 11, and as we're going to read through this, you're going to see no Hesed, no covenant love from David whatsoever. Zero. He doesn't show any love to Bathsheba. He doesn't show any love to Bathsheba's husband. He definitely doesn't show any love to some of the soldiers who were just kind of casualties of the incident. There's a shocking contrast here in David's heart. So let's look at chapter 11, and we'll read through it, and then we'll go through uh, and, and talk about some of these verses. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and came, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my, my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. All the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jeroboseth? Did not the woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebez? Why did you go near the wall? Then you will say, your servant Uriah and the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. Verse 23, the messenger said to David, the man gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to this house or to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What an incredible difference, right? I mean, a total change. Now, I've heard a lot of messages on this text. And a lot of times, I think they read a lot into the text. And we're not going to do that here tonight. All right? We're going to take the text at face value. And I think the first point here is, I just want you to see the ordinary nature of David's fall. It was very ordinary. This happened in a very ordinary way. It says in verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. Now here we have to pause because we have an issue here with the text itself if you notice in your bibles go out to battle should be italicized it's not in all all the the text but in most of them it is because it's not in the original and the other weird thing is where it says there the time when kings that word kings could also be messengers and the reason I say that is in the Hebrew, there's only one character difference. The words look almost identical, except the second, the second character is different in each of those words. And when you stop and think about it, the text reads and it flows with everything else that's going on in 2 Samuel a lot smoother if you understand this to be messengers. Because we're, we're going to see, as we read... He, he's dealing with the messengers. So it's the spring of the year. The heat's tuning up in that part of the country. Um, the messengers that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. So here's David, and there's been a, a major issue here where it tells us that David remained in Jerusalem. And I've heard pastors say, well, this was horrible. Why was he there? You have to understand what's going on. All of Israel is in a war, all of Israel. Um, so for, for David to stay behind, they're in the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, with troops and it doesn't seem like they were just partying there in, 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 in uh, Jerusalem. They were at the palace. they were guarding the palace, the, the troops. Because when Uriah the Hittite came, he refused to go to his house, even though David tried to get him to go because he was trying to cover something up. He refused to go. It would have been wrong. It would have been a capital offense to do something like that during a time of war like this. It would be like us saying we're all under attack. You remember when 9-11 happened? What did President Bush want to do? He wanted to get back to where? To Washington, D.C. To the capital of our country. He wanted to be there. Because that's where the ruler should be. When something like that is happening. It's the same thing here. It's a normal strategy of warfare. Where you see the same thing back in chapter 10. David would send out warriors. They would usually kick the, the, the butts of the, the people they're fighting for a couple days or whatever and then David would follow and he'd clean up and he'd probably get all the credit he'd come out and finish things off as a matter of fact if you read verse 1 David remained at Jerusalem there at the end of verse 1 and then jump all the way over to chapter 12 verse 29 it says so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. The same thing happens here. It's not not out of the ordinary for him to stay behind while he sent troops out to the front lines to take care of the the battle for a couple days or weeks. And then he came and he would clean things up. So it's in the spring of the the year. The heat is on. It says here in verse 1, that these these messengers that David sent Joab and they 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 basically they ravaged the Ammonites they besieged Reba David staying in Jerusalem and then it says in verse 2 it happened late one afternoon like a lot of places you know in in the the middle east it gets hot in the afternoon most people take a nap okay they take a nap so you know, he's getting up from his nap, which is nothing wrong with that. He gets up from his couch, and it says he's walking on the roof. The, the terminology there is, is really, it portrays he's exercising. He's not just up there, you know, casually, he's exercising, he's, he's physically doing something. It's, it's his form of exercise. And you've got to picture the, the, the Middle East, you've got to picture someplace. You know, here you have the king's palace. It's probably the highest place of all. He's got a, they all have roof decks on them because it gets so hot in the house, they need a place to retreat to you know, in the cool of the evening. So they would go up to their deck on the house. Now, I know Hollywood wants us to think that you know, on the deck of the house, they had pools and jacuzzis and all that. There's bars and all parties going on. It doesn't say that. I mean, that preaches well, but that's just not what's going on here. And so, he's up on the, the deck of his home, and he's doing some exercise, and there's many of the, the corresponding roofs in eyesight of where he's at, and he looks around, and, and they would go up there to, other people would be up on their decks as well, you'd probably wave to them, you know, they wouldn't be very far away. Um, people would go up there to escape the, the heat of the house, they would go up there to, uh wash their hands. They would have a bowl of water there. In the case of this situation, it really describes a woman who's going through her monthly cycle. She would go up there for a ceremonial washing. Okay, They didn't have full-blown bathrooms on the decks of their homes, on the roofs of their homes. She probably had a bowl of water, that Sheba. She was probably fully clothed because she was doing a ceremonial washing. It wouldn't be appropriate for a woman to go up on the roof of a house and stripped down naked so everybody, all the neighbors could see. It just wouldn't be appropriate, especially in, in, in this situation, in this environment. The Hollywood picture that it paints for us is totally wrong, what's going on here. These are very ordinary circumstances. There's nothing here to provoke what David did. Nothing. That's the shocking thing. I mean, you can see where Hollywood wants to make this into something. You have the central characters, the passionate warrior king, the beautiful but but passive woman, the pious and trusting husband, the obedient but really without any morals general. <laughs> and then you have the prophet of God who's without fear. I mean, it it, it it preaches real well. It makes the movie really nice. It includes things like lust and adultery and deceit and murder and blackmail, confrontation, tragedy, all those things. But that's not what we see here in the text. It's not here. There's no excuse offered here for David's sinful actions. That's stunning. There's none. The narrative only describes the actions that David took. We only see action verbs here in the Chapter 11. What do we see? We see that David sees. David asks about. He inquires. David sends for. And then David lies with. The key, wor- the key verb here is really to send. To send. In this whole chapter. Think about it. He sent Joab and his troops to war. They're out there fighting on the, the front. He sent and he inquired about the woman. David sent the messengers and took the woman. And then David sent word to Joab. And then he sent for Uriah the Hittite. And he sends to bring the woman into his presence. What's this show us? This shows us that King David is in control. He is ruling his kingdom. He's not going to bow to anybody. He is dominating the story here in chapter 11. It's very, very clear. There's nothing here that allows us to say, oh, poor David, he was roped into this. Nothing. Or that he was provoked into what he does. I mean, when we look at David in this light... Because I always looked at this and I thought, well, you know, as a guy, I can understand. You have this, you know, loose woman over there on the, on, the, on the housetop, you know, stripping down, trying to entice them. And we don't see that here. We don't see it at all. It wasn't set up at all. It actually paints David as a very disgusting individual. Somebody who's willing to use his power to take advantage of a very passive woman. See, that that flies in the face of the kind of person that up to this point we thought David was. How does this unprovoked sin happen? How do these things happen? See, the reason this is serious, the reason this is so serious, is that sometimes I hear hear Christians say, I would never do that. I'll never do something like that. That horrible person except by the grace of God, there go you. There go I. Don't ever, ever feel so comfortable in your righteousness that you think you're above all this melee because we never are. I think of Calvary Chapel pastor Bob Coy who had, had a lot of, just a second, had a lot of, he had a lot of uh, big church 30-some thousand people in his church. I mean, the week earlier, I'm looking through some of his sermons, going, oh, this is pretty good, I'll use this. And then the news comes out, boom. Stripped of everything. Found out he had an affair. Gone. It doesn't just happen like that. There's a pattern that leads up to this. So, as, as we go on with this story here, David is in control here, okay? He's not provoked in any way. How does this happen? Well, it starts where? It starts with thought, okay? Thought leads to imagination. Imagination turns that thought into something potentially pleasurable. And then your will turns it into an action. Uh, the mind entertains the idea of sin. That's why the Bible says we need to bring every thought, what? Into captivity. Captivity. That's why it's so dangerous when you hear Christians say, oh, you know, a contemplative prayer, you know, you just go to prayer and you just open your mind to whatever. That's not what the Bible says. It tells us to do just the opposite. Bring every thought into captivity. The mind entertains the idea of sin. Imagination beautifies and converts that, that idea into an action. Desire reaches out to it, and the will goes ahead and does it. John MacArthur gives a progression of sin. He says it starts in the mind, it leads to the emotions, which leads to the will, which leads to action. That's, That's the template for any sin that we participate in. What's interesting here is that there's no obvious tempter in this story, when you stick to the text, you don't read the Hollywood version, but you stick to the text. There's no obvious tempter here. It doesn't describe Bathsheba in a certain way that makes her a temptress. See, normally temptation always involves what? A tempter. It did with Adam, right? The serpent. It did with Christ. What happens? Satan appears to Christ. Sometimes in Scripture, in the Old Testament, you see people who are being tempted, and sometimes that tempterist or tempter is a is a person. You think of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Okay, there, there's an obvious tempter there, but usually, usually throughout the Scriptures, Satan is in deep cover as a tempter. He doesn't just come out and show himself. And he's been in deep cover until, in the New Testament, we see him make an appearance with who? With Christ. He he appears to Jesus, and he tempts him. Jesus, the better David, is tempted. But for most of us, we're not conscious of a tempter. I mean, we like to blame it on a tempter when we get caught. Well, the the devil made me do it. Well, Well, no, the devil didn't make you do anything. You did it because you wanted to do it. So just own it, confess it, and move on. Sin comes to us pretty readily, I would say. We don't even really need a tempter. We fall. And so you see this is a very ordinary kind of situation. This is something probably most of us deal with on a daily basis. Well, then you see this ambiguity of David's fall. Usually, if you look in your, in your Bibles... The heading in the ESV, in my version, it says David and Bathsheba. That's usually what it says. But when I went through and I started to find out where Bathsheba is mentioned here, she's only mentioned twice. Twice. The first and last time she's mentioned before she's married to David is in verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one and, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam?" the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's how she's described, by the way, as I said, in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But she is largely passive. Don't get me wrong, she sinned. (laughs) I'm not excusing her sin, but what I'm saying is she's she's largely passive here in the text. What happens to her? She's seen, summoned, And then she's dismissed. That's it. She's brought to the royal palace, as the story tells us, under escort of guards. Because the king sent for her. What's interesting, the only action verbs used by her, concerning her in this story, are that she was cleansing herself. She reported her pregnancy... And then she lamented over her husband. That's it. That's all she did. And apart from verse 3, she's always mentioned in relationship to others. There's no attempt here in the text to make her an equal partner to this affair or to paint her as some horrible temptress up on the, the rooftop trying to draw the king in. See, it's not a Potiphar and Joseph situation here at all. As a matter of fact, I think if you take that route, you you miss the entire point of this story. She is seen, she's described, she's named, she's summoned, and she's lain with. That's it. Not once is the finger of blame pointed in her direction. Because who's in control? Once again, King David. See, just like the story of Adam. Think about it. I often wondered about this, you know. I mean, Eve was the one, right? I mean, she was involved in this whole thing. But who gets the blame? Adam. Well, in this story, David gets the blame. She's involved. She sins. But there's not much made of her sin here. But there's a lot made of David's sin. And the other thing I noticed as I read through this, there, there's, there's no feelings mentioned here at all. Other than her lamenting over her dead husband there's no feelings at all i mean we don't know how david's feeling doesn't tell us silence we don't really even know how bathsheba's feeling up until her she finds out her husband is dead there's no feelings there's not a lot of feeling going on in terms of how david is even feeling toward her there's no mention of it there's no hint of caring there's no mention of love I mean, usually, you know, if somebody does something like that, you'd think that they would have some kind of a dialogue. But it doesn't say that. It says David sees her form. He doesn't even see her face. He doesn't even know who she is. What happens? He needs to be told who she is. He never mentions her name. He never talks to her. The most telling verb of this entire chapter Is he took her he took her and the reason that's such a big part of this chapter if you remember back in first Samuel go back with me first Samuel chapter 8 remember what the prophet warned of okay Israel you want a king I gotta warn you this is not going to be good 1 Samuel, chapter 8. Israel demands a king. Verse 10. The prophet Samuel. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And look at what it says. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and to equip of his chariots, equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, wives and concubines even. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards. On and on and on and on it goes. Samuel warned them, hey, if, if, you, if you have a king, he's going to take. He's going to take, 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 take. And here we have David. Think of it. King David. Who, guess what? He's been given everything. He's been given everything. He's been given, given, given He's been given by Yahweh. He's been given by Jonathan. He's been given by Abigail. He's been given by his adoring followers. And now here is David who's been given everything. And what happens? He becomes a taker. He's a taker. He took her. That's what the text says. What's this show us? It shows us David. King David is acting like who? He's acting like Saul. He's acting like His former enemy. Here is David falling. Falling flat on his face. There's also this complexity of the fall before us. I mean, what's the the complexity? Well, the complexity is it's wartime. It's wartime in Israel. It's wartime on the front lines. All the army, the Israeli army, has been mobilized. That's why when David summons Uriah to come back, hey, go, go you know, wash your feet. What that meant was go, go have some fun with your wife. What was he trying to do? He's trying to cover up the pregnancy. He's trying to get this thing to go away. He had a plan. He had a purpose. He's in control. But that's why Uriah sleeps not at home, but with the other soldiers. It wouldn't be right. It's actually, it would actually been a capital offense for somebody to do that. It, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be almost like this thing, yes. You know, your, your, your comrades are out fighting on the front lines in your home, drinking it up with your wife, having a good old time. That, that would not go well. See, the limits of holy war don't stop at the palace doors either. David is the commander-in-chief. I mean, he's in charge of all this. But you know what? He shouldn't have been sleeping with his own wives, let alone somebody else's wife. He shouldn't have been doing that during this time, but that's what he was doing. His priorities were all messed up. His power went to his head. Power corrupted his heart. And sin, we see it here, begin in the heart of David. And it begins to spread. And so do its effects. It infects everything it touches. That's how sin is. That's why God says don't take sin lightly. Don't excuse sin. Confront it. Deal with it. Confess it. As a believer, move on. Athanasius says it devises all manner of new evil. That's what sin does. It just grows. continues to grow. I mean, think with Adam and Eve, all the way back in Genesis. Adam and Eve, they blew it, they sinned. What what do they start doing? Rather than owning it, they start blaming one another, right? And then they start what? Blaming the serpent. And then ultimately, who are they blaming? They blame God. That's what happens. Sin always leads to more sin. Always, every time. So David, in his heart, he starts to plot to cover this sin up. Well, we see Bathsheba finally gets to say something. And she says two words in the Hebrews, three words in English. I am pregnant. (laughs) I am pregnant. They're in verse 5. That's it. That's all she says. David hasn't seen her since this one night stand. He hasn't sent for her to repeat this affair, maybe weeks have gone past, she realizes she's pregnant, and finally the awful truth dawns on her, she's isolated, she can't talk to the king, she has no relationship with the king, she was just used by the king, she really can't talk to anyone in her situation, because where's her husband, her husband's out at war. She can't be telling people, guess what, I'm pregnant. Really, how did this happen? It's a capital offense for her too. That's that's not a good deal. Really, her life is at the end if she is found out to be pregnant while her husband is away. That's kind of the situation here. And suddenly David reacts in this way. I mean, he could have just said, wasn't me. I don't want to tell you. Get out of here. I mean, they didn't have paternity tests back then. You ever think of this? He could have just dismissed her. But he doesn't. Interesting. He could have just covered the whole thing up. The way he treats everybody else, he could have. Why would he treat her differently? Why he, would he treat this situation differently? And I think the complexity here of this situation also speaks to this strange relationship with Uriah the Hittite. I mean, this is kind of reading some of it into the text, but not really, because you notice it isn't until he knows the girl's name that he sends for her. Notice that? Who's that girl, who's that beautiful woman over there? Well that's that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Oh really? Send her. Go get her. I don't know what kind of history they had. I don't know what's been going on there. Maybe David felt threatened by Uriah. We don't know. But there's something strange in verse 11 in Uriah's language. You can kind of it just kind of comes out. Because here is is David trying to get Uriah to do something that was wrong for a soldier to do. And in verse 11, now, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the king. He's a subject of the king. Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booze, and my lord Joab and the servants of, the lord, of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? That's why we know washing your feet has something to do with lying with your wife. I don't know what it is, but that's the, the, the uh, intention there of the language. And he says, As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He just defied the king. Is he, is, is he a threat to the king? Does David want to get rid of Uriah? Well, he tries to implicate him in a sin to lie with his wife during time of battle, which would not be good. And we don't have the answers to these questions. So I'm just kind of throwing them out there. But see, this, this chapter is not about Bathsheba. What's it about? It's about David's heart. It's about what's going on in this man's life. And what's going on and what he's done. And at the end of the chapter, we we find out why it's such a big deal. In verse 27, this chapter closes out. It says, but the thing that David had done, what? Displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. The Holman Bible says, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. I like that terminology better because that's exactly what it was. It was an evil plot that David carried out here. This caring shepherd who's been given everything all of his life became a ravenous wolf. And now he's exposed for it. The other interesting thing here in the text is there's kind of a parallel going on here with verse 25. If you focus on the word displeased. In verse 25, remember David sends this this message to Joab after the death of Uriah. I mean, he plotted to have this guy killed basically on the front battle. Then he he sends this message and he says to, David said to the messenger, uh, Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter, oh, displease you. Isn't that interesting? David says, Don't let this matter displease. It doesn't displease me. It doesn't bother me. Don't let this evil thing that I did be an issue with you, Joab. Because it's not in my eyes. This is just a casualty of war. Isn't it interesting who has the last word in that, verse 27? <laughs> but the thing that David had done displeased who? The Lord. The Lord. See, this is how sin works. Even as believers, we can commit sin and talk ourselves into that's not that big of a deal. We know it's wrong. But when it displeases God, it is a big deal. And there needs to be repentance. There needs to be brokenness. We don't see any of that here. Yet. It's the same language that's used in verse twenty-five as is, is used in verse twenty-seven. God has the final say. Now, this is—we're at the middle of this story because, really, remember, I said this last week too. I think the chapter divisions aren't there. You know, first and second Samuel—it's just Samuel. Okay, chapters 9 and 10, that's that's all should go together. Verses 11 and 12 should all be one narrative. We just don't have time to go through the whole thing in one night. So we're in the middle of this story. And up to this point, there's been no repentance from David at all. There's been no restoration. David's heart has become calculating. he's, He's really become indifferent to the things of God. David isn't even lamenting the death of Uriah. It's like, oh, whatever. And not only that, but there was innocent people killed that were kind of around Uriah when the hell rang down from him, from from all the arrows, or however they died, from the enemy. There were other soldiers, had nothing to do with this. Those soldiers probably had families. David doesn't care. He has no concern. As a matter of fact, when the grieving period is over for Bathsheba, because she lost her husband... What's he do? He says, oh, by the way, go get that woman and bring her to the palace. She's one of my wives now. I mean, how cold? How, See, he's still in control. He's still the king. He's still barking orders. See, this is the David we don't want to see. We want to think, David, a man after God's own heart. Well, this is a different side of David. And you know what? This side exists in every one of us. David is in control. He's using his power. He's abusing his power. He's exerting his power. And he's doing it for what? For his own purposes. That's why he's doing all this. I mean, it's really disgusting. It makes David look like a creep. I mean, you would not want this individual hanging around with your daughter. You know what I'm saying? This would be, no, no way. Well, why is it in the Bible? Why is David, acting like this. If you look over, we'll get to this next week, but just look at one verse with me in Second Samuel chapter 12. Look at verse 10. Second Samuel chapter 12. Oh yeah, no, that's right, verse 10. "Now, therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Why? Because you have displeased me. Who's talking? Who? The Lord. Why is this in the Bible? Why is he, he, he displeased God? Something dark has happened in David's heart. And as the chapter ends here, David has stopped sending. <laughs> he stopped acting. And you know what? At this point in the narrative, we'll get into this next week, in, in chapter 12, only God can help this individual. Only God. There's no, there's no help for him outside of God. That's the message that we're left with at the end of chapter 11. God help this poor soul. We've all probably run into people like that. We try to help them, We try whatever, and it's like finally we just throw our hands up and go, you know what, I can't, I can't do this anymore. God help you. That's kind of where we leave David at the end of chapter 12. He's committed adultery. He's committed murder. Two blood crimes, by the way, that really there's a death sentence for. Only God can help him. The second thing here is this is, this is David, the great ideal king. Every other king will be measured by this king. You see it in scripture. You read texts and it says something like, either the king walked according to his father who? David. If he did, that's a good thing. Or the text may say, and he walked not according to his father David. That's a bad thing. And here, this ideal king comes crashing down. Because the message is he's the king. He's the ideal king. But guess what? He's not. He's not the one. He's not the one who's going to build a house for God. He's not the one who's going to build a temple for God. He's not the one who's going to live forever and reign on his throne forever He's not the one who can do anything for anyone anymore. It's going to take another one. It's going to take one who has to do something for David. Fast forward. Leave the Old Testament. Go to the New Testament. Come to the the River Jordan. Here we have Yeshua Nazareth come, he's being baptized by John the Baptist. God's been silent for years. Years. But God breaks his silence. For centuries he breaks his silence and he says, What? This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. You know where that comes? Comes out of Psalm two. Hmm. Psalm of David. Describing the coronation of God's king. Here's the king in David's line. Here's the king who's going to occupy David's throne. The phrase, in whom I'm well pleased, reads out of Isaiah. I believe it's chapter 42. He's acknowledged by God as David's successor, the son of God, David's heir, David's son. And immediately after his baptism, what happens? He's taken out into the desert. And what? He's tempted by Satan himself. He's tempted by the devil. As a second and last Adam, as a greater and better David, as a new and true Israel, he's tested, he's tempted, and he's assaulted by Satan himself. And where Israel failed, where David failed, where Adam failed, guess what? Jesus wins. Overwhelmingly. He wins outright. He resists the devil. He defeats Satan. He overcomes temptation. And the lesson is simply this. In the words of King David, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in mortal men. We do this all the time in politics. We think somehow some superstar is going to come along and save the world. And in the end, they usually end up failing us. Don't put your trust in mortal men. Put your trust where? In the true king. In Christ. In Jesus. When you stop and think about it, here was David, the king. And what was he doing? He's at a point in his life where he's, he's been given everything. But he's turned into a taker. He's taking this. He's taking that, He took this poor woman. We want to put our trust in Christ because he's the only king who doesn't take, take, take. He's the only one. What does he do? He gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he continues to give. And when you think he can't give any more, he gives some more. What does he give us? He gives us his grace. See, as surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you who trust his name will triumph in him too. That's where our trust needs to be. It needs to be in Christ. Now next week we're going to see how David is called out and how that plays out. But the message here is very clear. Don't ever presume that I'd never do that. I'd never go there. If it could happen to somebody like David, man, after God's own heart, it can happen to any one of us. Let me close in a word of prayer and then we'll take some questions or comments. Father, we thank you for your word here tonight. Thank you for this narrative on David and, and Bathsheba. And, and Lord, um, help us to be reminded of How easy it is for us to fall into sin. And how easy it is for our pride, our heart, to become prideful. And to deny it. (laughs) Not to own it. Try to figure out a way out of it. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the true King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who continues to give. He gives us grace each and every day. Overwhelming grace. Wonderful grace. Lord, we, we, we can't help ourselves to come to you on our knees thankful that you don't treat us justly. You treat us graciously. If you were to treat us justly, we would all be condemned to hell forever. But Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your involvement in our lives that even before the foundation of the world, that you set your love upon us and you drew us to, to yourself. And we can sit here tonight reading your word inspired by the, the Holy Spirit, that spirit that dwells within us, that gives us the ability to understand these words and apply them to our lives. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for all that. We thank you for the body of Christ, the church that we can gather in, the building that we can, we can meet in tonight out from the, the wind and the cold and the rain. Lord, we take so many things for granted. Lord, we just pray that we would be dependent upon you each and every day and never, ever forget that except for the grace of God, there go one of us. Lord, we just pray that you would protect us, keep us. Thank you for your your keeping power, that you hold us in the hollow of your hand. We just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen mm